Grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 3. And uh, as I just prayed, we're diving into Romans chapter 3. And in this next chapter, we're going to be looking really specifically at gospel clarity. We're moving from this picture of gospel necessity into gospel clarity. And as we get there, we're going to see that there's a lot of questions in this text that Paul is answering for us. And I want to begin by asking you a question about questions, and that is this. Does everybody, everybody familiar with the question guy? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Like in school, or maybe it's in church, or maybe it's at work, the guy who's always got a question but is not concerned about the answer? You know what I'm talking about? I've had those guys all throughout my life, and uh, I can remember, remember specifically in university having a guy in one class, every class, everybody was waiting all the time just to hear and, count and, and, and begin to tally up the amount of questions this one guy would ask. <clears throat> always had an objection, always had an opinion, and he always had a better answer than the professor. I'll just be blunt here, nobody likes the question guy, so if that's you, Stop. Especially when he's just a gotcha guy. And a lot of question guys, that's what they're after. They, they think they can come up with a question, right, where they, you know, stump the professor or in the church life, stump the pastor, which is not hard. But the whole point is like, ha, gotcha. You bet you can't handle that question. But before we throw the question guy out, I just want to acknowledge that the question guy actually has some value. You see, most of the time, the objections or the questions are nothing new. Same old questions to the same issues. It's nothing new under the sun. But a skilled teacher can take absurd and even foolish questions and give greater clarity to the issue for everyone. In this passage... That's exactly what Paul is doing. He is dealing with the question guy. And the question guy here is the religious Jew. He's a gotcha guy. He is trying to stump the apostle Paul. He's trying to turn Paul's arguments on on their heads or turn them against the apostle Paul. The skilled teacher is Paul. And he will give greater clarity, and the issue at stake that needs clarity is the gospel. It is the gospel, specific aspects of the gospel. And in our last section in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, verses 25 through 29 specifically, the teaching of Paul prompts these objections. It stirs up these questions, namely that there were no fundamental differences between the Jews and the Gentiles, that the law and circumcision guaranteed neither Jewish immunity to the judgment of God nor Jewish identity as the people of God. And this is what the Jews had banked on. This is what they had put their hope in. They had put their hope in the blessings and the advantages and the privileges that God had given to them, but all the while they had missed what these privileges and advantages and blessings were ultimately pointing them to, the greater object of their faith, the substance of their faith. They were consumed with the trappings of faith, the exterior religious practices of faith, and they didn't truly possess the faith. Paul points out that there is no fundamental difference between Jews and Gentiles. And this then, for the religious Jew, begins to call into question God Himself, God's covenant, 
God's promises, God's character. And Paul was not content, as we'll see in this passage, to only proclaim and expound the gospel. He is also arguing its truth and reasonableness. And we see here Paul teaching us a valuable lesson. Paul longs for the gospel to be defended against misunderstanding and misrepresentations. And as we see in this text, clarity often requires questions. Listen to these questions and listen to Paul's brief but powerful answers. Verse 1 in chapter 3, he says this, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Paul fields these questions from this heckler in the crowd, this religious Jew, and he handles them with ease and precision. Now, it's important to say that here is more of a superficial handling of these objections. Paul in Romans chapter 9 through 11 is going to handle these objections more fully and in far more detail, but we, we get a glimpse into the mind of the Apostle Paul here and the primary arguments that he wants to make We see in this passage three questions to give greater gospel clarity. That's Paul's objective here. He wants to take these foolish and sometimes even absurd questions, and he wants to actually use them to give greater gospel clarity. Here's the first question for us. Am I clear on God's revealed truth? Am I clear on God's revealed truth? You'll notice how he begins in verses 1 and 2. The question is this, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? what's, What's the point then of being a Jew? Was there really any value? Remember, he's just dismantled, in one sense, their understanding of salvation. And here he says, The Jews have an incredible advantage. The advantage here is they have the truth of God's Word. Their advantage is great in every way. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Paul is going to lay out multiple advantages, but I want you to notice here that the very first one we see here is, I believe, the most important privilege of all. It is the greatest privilege of all. And I emphasize this, listen, because we are all in real danger of not recognizing and embracing the wonderful truth that's been afforded to us. Out of all the advantages, this is by far the greatest advantage. There is no higher privilege that can come to any human being than than to have been spoken to directly by God Himself. We understand the feeling of being spoken to by somebody important, don't we? Somebody that we we, we just, we, we can't 
fathom that they would speak to us. And, and maybe, you know, maybe you had that experience where somebody, maybe it was somebody famous or somebody that you looked up to, admired and respected, and, and, and maybe somebody you know, in high school or, or college that you wish would pay attention to you at a different level than, than you thought they were interested in, and you couldn't believe when they finally talked to you, and the, and, and the response was, I can't believe they spoke to me. Multiply that feeling by infinity and realize that there is nothing greater than this, that God should speak to man the oracles of God. This is what Jesus says when he responds to the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, he quotes right out of the Old Testament. The, 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 the Jews would have known this and loved this. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the idea there, it's so powerful and so profound. It, it is this, that this is where true life comes from. There is nothing else that can give life to people. There's nothing else that can bring spiritually dead people to life but the Word of God. I was recently speaking with, with a friend. We have, we have a mutual friend who his life, I can't say it any other way than his life has been radically flipped upside down. A guy who struggled with massive addiction and deep, deep sin issues and, and had to end up going away for rehab, and who's now a completely different person. And I was, I was talking to, to this mutual friend saying, what, what happened? Who, who is it that influenced this person in the gospel and, and helped to see them transform their lives? And his answer was powerful. I'm like, like who, is, who is he listening to? Who is speaking to him about this stuff? And his, his answer was this. He said, nobody. You want to know what happened? He had heard all the gospel truths before. He, he had been to church many times before, but here's the simple answer. While he was alone by himself, he opened up the Word of God, and he began to dive into the Word of God, and the Word of God met him and gave him new life and began to radically transform him so that he looks like an entirely different man today. It's the power of the Word of God. It is these oracles of God that were entrusted to the Jews that they, that they should have understood. This is what they are rebuked for not doing by Jesus himself. It was the oracles of God, the Old Testament scriptures in view here in particular, by the way, that revealed the character of God to the people of God, that revealed God's plan of redemption for the world that God would bring about through the Jewish people. Thousands of years earlier, God had chosen Abraham in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, we read about a covenant that God made with Abraham. God called this man Abram out of a pagan lifestyle, promising that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was a foretelling of the gospel. And the Jews were entrusted with this truth, the truth that all the Scriptures pointed to, that there would be a Messiah, someone who would come to liberate humanity from the bondage of sin. Being a Jew has much value in every way, but it's important to see also that it's, it's a different kind of value that is a value of responsibility rather than security. You see, they, they had put their security in simply possessing the law. 
They failed to see the great responsibility that God had given to them. What exactly does that mean? Well, there are three things they were supposed to do with the truth. And by the way, by, by, by way of application, we too, as the church of Jesus Christ, have a similar privilege and responsibility. Here's what God had called the Jewish people to. First, to grasp the truth. The truth was given to them so that they could actually know and understand the truth. They were called to apprehend the truth, to mine out the depths and the wonders and the riches of the Word of God. They were called to understand the God of the Word and the plan of God laid out in the Word. Secondly, they were called to guard the truth. They were supposed to defend the truth and protect the truth. They had been given the truth about God. Out of all the nations on the earth, God had chosen them, not because they were anything special, not because they were important in any way, but just the opposite. God had entrusted to them the truth about Himself, and they were supposed to not only know it deeply, but to protect it and defend it. And third they were supposed to give the truth. The intended purpose of God in giving the people of God the the Word of God was so that other people would hear this Word through them. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a light to the pagan nations around them. They were supposed to be the place that the nations could come, could stream into, and to know and to learn about that the true and living God, that the one and only God in a culture filled with polytheism, multiple gods, they were supposed to teach the truth about the one true and living God. What a privilege to be God's representatives and ambassadors And again, let me just say it clearly, the church has this same privilege and responsibility. I wonder, as as we sit here even this morning, do we realize what a privilege it is that we have these scriptures right here? Do we realize what a privilege it is to have an open Bible in front of us? To have this book right here, to read it, to study it, to dive deeply into it, to spend time praying over it, to be memorizing it and meditating upon it and transformed by it. It's, it's so helpful to be reminded of this truth. I know you know this. Many of you are like, yes, I, I've heard this truth before, but here's, here's the reality. Oftentimes, we come to our Bibles and we open it merely as a matter of, of custom or duty. We approach it again, and again, again, I know you've heard this, but let me just say it because it's so frequent in our lives. We all drift into this pattern and this habit of simply coming to the Bible because we know we're supposed to. I tick the box off, and I I got it out of the way so that I can get on with my day and do what needs to be done. And we need to constantly be reminded that we need to come to the Bible not as a matter of, of custom or duty, but as a matter of necessity. As a matter of delight and love, do we approach our Bibles thinking, here, right here, right now, is God speaking to me? Sadly, like the religious Jews, many of us can have the truth but miss the truth entirely. And if we miss it, what Paul's pointed to here is we will actually be judged by it. You see, there's a great advantage to having the truth, but that doesn't exempt you from judgment. In fact, it makes you more culpable to judgment. 
It's like a police officer who breaks the law. He's not exempt from the law that he broke. In fact, you could argue that because of how much he knew the law and was expected to uphold the law, it's a far more egregious offense that he would violate the law. Your advantage increases your culpability, Paul is telling them, and condemnation as a result. Remember, that's what he's been proving in this section. The Jews are guilty like the Gentiles. And he now moves on to other objections, and he begins to show this in greater detail. Here's the second question. Am I clear on God's righteous character? This is what they had, again, misunderstood or misrepresented. They have this great advantage. But then in verse 3, notice what he says. Okay, so we have this advantage as Jews that we have these oracles of God. Okay, so what if some were unfaithful, the question is? Because that's what Paul has been telling them, right? <laughs> you know, the majority of you have been unfaithful to God's Word. You've not, you've not kept God's law. So their, their question is then, does, does, their, does our faithlessness then nullify the faithfulness of God? Does that mean that God will not be faithful to do for us what He promised to do for us? And Paul's answer, verse 4, by no means. You can see their concern. God made a promise to Abraham. God said He was going to bless us. God said He was going to do this for us. So even if we fail, He must still bless us in order for Him to be faithful. There is a certain logic there that's actually really, really helpful and true. That's their argument. And their point is this, doesn't this make God inconsistent with Himself? You're telling me, Paul, that if, if this is true, then God's not going to be faithful to His promises. So you see, it's His character that's on the line. They think they, they've got Him here. They've really put Paul in the corner. But I just, again, let me just remind you, Paul is not an amateur when it comes to arguing the faith, okay? Paul has been on numerous missionary journeys. Beyond that, Paul himself was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the chief of sinners. He was the persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And after he was saved, on all his missionary journeys, he went first, and for every town he went to, he went first into the synagogues. This isn't his first rodeo, okay? Like, Paul's like, I've, I've heard these questions before. In fact, you, you probably could see this, that Paul, as a Pharisee, would have made these very same arguments. So it was like, Paul... The unbeliever, the Pharisee, arguing now with Paul the Christian. Paul declares that there is no breach in the faithfulness of God. Why? His point here, listen, is that God always does what He says He will do. Always. They wrongly assume that God is only faithful in His saving of them, and not in his judging of them. But you see, God's covenant promises contained, if you, if you read through the Scriptures, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you read through the Scriptures, what you find is this. When God made his covenant with his people through Moses, God promised this, that he would be faithful to bless them, but he would also be faithful to curse them if they disobeyed. The old covenant that God made with the Jewish people does not mean He simply overlooks sin. God always punishes the unrepentant party. He will not pardon someone who is guilty. And so Paul responds with this emphatic statement, certainly not, by no means. 
And he says this, let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it is written. He's going to defend his point there. Let God be true, though everyone a liar is. Listen, the whole world may be unfaithful, but God will always remain faithful. God's righteousness is displayed. Listen, this is so important to see. God's righteousness is displayed even when he is judging sinners for their sin. Last week, we saw that Paul quoted from Isaiah 52, which speaks to the judgment leveled upon Judah as they were taken into captivity in Babylon, and, and Paul uses it there as he, he wants them to understand that their sin has, has caused the nations, the Gentiles, to blaspheme God. But I want you to remember this, that what God did to the, the Jews in dragging them off into exile under the, the Babylonian regime was actually what he promised to do. So far from being a display of God's unfaithfulness to his people, it was actually, ironically, a display of his faithfulness to them. This is what he promised would happen, and God will always do what he promises to do, both in forgiveness and in judgment. But I I think you can see the frustration in the Jewish mind, because they they just want God to bless them. They want to be happy with the God who made the the promises of good, and, and they're unhappy with any idea of a God who would actually chastise them, punish them, or let them experience any kind of of suffering or pain in this life. And I think if we're honest, we often are like the Jews here, aren't we? We want a God who only brings good and never allows bad in our lives. We think that trials, pain, and problems somehow discredit God's faithfulness. So many times I've seen this, somebody going through a trial, big, small, or somewhere in between, and their response is not to draw near to God, it's actually to condemn God. How could God do this to me? I don't deserve this. I've been obedient to God. I've been so faithful. He must not really love me like he says he does. We can even be frustrated with God because we suffer from our own sinful decisions. It's kind of like a child who's angry with the the parents who have disciplined them, you know, stomping their feet, slamming the door, crossing their arms, declaring, you aren't good, you aren't faithful, you don't really love me. Meanwhile, the parents simply did exactly what they promised would do, they would do if the child chose to disobey. You see, the parent who doesn't follow through with what they say isn't demonstrating faithfulness, but unfaithfulness. The parent who steps, steps back and watches their kids living in sin and says, if you keep this up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ground you for a month, and then never actually does it, is teaching this and is teaching their kids not that they're faithful, not that they're true to their word, but that they are unfaithful. Now, I get it. We all, uh, we've all made those idle threats and never followed through as parents, right? We, we, we're sinners too, and sometimes in our anger, we make ludicrous statements to our kids about the kind of judgment or punishment they deserve. And we've got to retract on that, and we've got to back it up. So there's, there's a place for grace in that. But the point is simple here, that to teach his people about his own faithfulness, he had to be true to what he said he would do. 
And God is not like us. He is always faithful. He always does what He promises to do. Now, Paul amps up his argument here in verse 4, and he quotes from the Old Testament to bolster this point. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul quotes here from Psalm 51, a psalm many of you are familiar with, and uh, a psalm that uh, you're likely familiar with because you've read many times over. It's David's psalm of repentance. And the context of this is really, really important. Remember, this is King David. If you know the story of King David, just really quickly, you know David was, was a man after God's own heart. He was chosen by God to be the second king of Israel. And David, uh, later in his life, when he should have been out to war, instead he begins to meander about on his rooftop, and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing, and he decides to take for himself what is not rightly his. And he takes this woman Bathsheba to himself, and she gets pregnant, and lo and behold, Bathsheba is actually the wife of a man in David's own army, a key figure in his army. And so David, to cover his sin, invites Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home, gets him drunk, trying to get him to, to go in with his wife so, so he can maybe cover his own sin up. Uriah refuses, and so David instead plots out a plan to murder him in the heat of battle, to have him murdered. David lives in the guilt and shame of this sin for a year. He begins to waste away, he says. And a year later of trying to bury and hide this sin, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan tells him this marvelous story, this parable of sorts that exposes David's sin. And David, in a moment, listen, is broken by his sin, and he confesses his sin not only to the Lord, but before all of Israel. And Psalm 51 is his public confession of sin. And, and he writes this, and listen to what he writes, the context of this, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, here it is, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David, King David, looks at his own life and he says this, God, I understand that my sin is against you, it is right and just for you to punish me for my sin. David, excuse me, Paul essentially says, listen, if you've got a problem with me, you've got a problem with David. And essentially what David is articulating is what Paul is articulating, and that is this, that sin does not serve to dismiss God's righteous character, but instead to display God's righteous character. It doesn't derail God's plan or promises, and it doesn't defile His person, His character. Sin serves as a favor for God to put His majesty on display. And even though some are unfaithful, God will never be unfaithful. And in His judgment, there is not a sign of His unfaithfulness, but instead a proving of His faithfulness. Whatever man may do, God always does what is right and just, because that is who He is. So Paul points them back to the righteous character of God and says God is righteous both when He saves and when He judges. The problem you have is that you fail to understand that you deserve this judgment. And so he now moves on to this final objection, and he shows this question to us, am I clear on God's righteous 
judgment. Or justice, excuse me. Required justice. We'll get it. And they begin to think about what David has said to them and said, okay, so you're telling me that in my sin, God is actually displaying His righteousness. It's serving to put God's righteousness on display. You can see the argument, can't you? But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul says, I speak in a human way. This is an earthly, human, ungodly way of speaking. In other words, that God has no right to inflict judgment upon us because we're helping God, right? We're helping Him. Look at his answer in verse 6. By no means. For then how could judge God judge the world? You see what he does there? He says this, if your logic is correct, based on your logic, if sin serves simply to put the righteousness of God on display, then nobody deserves to be judged. Everybody's off the hook then. But Paul's point to them is this, you don't believe that. You sure believe that the Gentiles believe to be judged. You just think that you don't deserve it. So they push it a step further. They look at what Paul is saying, and here's what they come up with. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Again, this doesn't make sense that I would be judged if, if I am serving God's greater purposes and God's greater glory. And even worse than that, look at this logic, flawed logic. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Again, this isn't Paul's first rodeo. He, he knows. He's preached the gospel before, and the Jews have always come up with this charge against him. You're basically saying that what we should just live sinfully and wickedly so that God's grace may abound. He's going to unpack this in more detail in Romans chapter 6. And you know what he says? He doesn't, even, he, he doesn't even bother dealing with their perverted logic here. He simply makes this, this statement. If that's the way you think, if that's your attitude, your condemnation is just. You deserve what you get. To, to, think, to think that somehow God would be okay with your sin. Here's what we clearly know here, just two things under this category. God's glory does not excuse us from the judgment of sin. Paul, that's, that's Paul's understanding here. That's what he's assuming that they understand. God's glory does not excuse us from the judgment of sin. If God uses unrighteousness to serve His purposes, and His righteousness then is on display, how can He judge us? That's their question. You see, that would make God immoral and unjust if He would simply overlook sin or wink at sin or sweep it under the rug. Paul says by that logic, God can't judge anyone, and you know that that's not true. You know that God has to judge. You know that's part of His holy, righteous character. Now, admittedly, there's tension in here that we, I think, have all wrestled with, this tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, this tension of evil and suffering and God being good and just and our finite minds do struggle to understand how God can be just in both punishing sin 
and wickedness, and using wickedness, isn't it, isn't it hard here, and using that same wickedness to display his glory. God punishes sin on the one hand, but then he uses that sin to display his glory. And this is not a contradiction. There is tension here. This is what we call, biblically speaking, a mystery. And any time we put ourselves in this position where we see the mystery and tension in the Scripture and we land on a position like this, God, you're wrong and I'm right. You just need to know this. You're in big trouble. I mean, think of Job for a second. Job wrestling through the tension of God's sovereignty and suffering and sin in, in his own life and his friends trying to help him wrestle through very unhelpfully. All his friends are giving their opinion on the matter as to why Job is suffering so greatly And finally, God shows up in the later chapters of Job, and he says, oh, why don't you clothe yourself in majesty and power? Do you know the measurements of the universe? Did you create animals? Were you there at the laying of the foundation of the earth? And Job puts his hand on his mouth, and he repents in dust and ashes. And we've all been there, right? I'm I'm right, God's wrong, because I don't understand. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this helpful kind of paradigm to use. He says this, a very good way of testing any view that you may hold is this one. Is this view humbling to me and glorifying to God? If it is, it is probably right. You won't go far wrong if whatever view you are holding is glorifying to God and humbling to man. But if your view seems to glorify you and to query God, well, there's no need to argue or go into details. It's wrong. He says, this is a very good universal rule. I agree. It is a profound mystery that God uses sin to accomplish his purposes, isn't it? But it is never but in, in this, listen, it, it, here's the tension. God is never responsible for the sin that we commit and he is always sovereign over it and just to punish it. It's like the statement from Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And this, by the way, is one of the most profound and helpful truths in all of Scripture. That God, Listen, this is so good. This is so comforting. This is so important. God is sovereign over sin. God is in complete control. That means this, nothing, nothing will derail the plan of God. Nothing can stop the promises of God. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See that? God takes the sin and he brings himself great glory. It doesn't thwart his plan, he uses it to accomplish his plan. Do we fully understand this? By no means. (laughs) What a comforting truth, though. Because that means that God can take what we meant for evil, listen, in our lives, and God can turn it around for our good and for His glory. Paul knew this. Take a persecutor of the church, the chief of sinners, and make him a proclaimer of the gospel. (laughs) That means this, that nothing you've walked in here with today, nothing... There's nothing that God isn't sovereign over. There's nothing that God can't redeem in your life today. There's nothing that God can't forgive, nothing. And that's a powerful gospel reality. Secondly, we see this. God's grace does not give us an excuse to justify our sin. 
to go on sinning. Listen, this is what they said, right? This is what he's going to take up in Romans chapter 6. I guess we'll just keep sinning so that grace may abound. I mean, let's, let's help God out here. Let's keep, keep putting his grace on display. Let's just go sin our brains out. But you see, to go on sinning may actually be evidence that you're not even saved. And if this is your thinking, your condemnation is just. God didn't save you so that you could keep sinning. He saved you so that you could stop sinning. So that you could be set free from the power of sin and the bondage to it. So you could find greater satisfaction. That the satisfaction that you seek in your sin, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a, it's a pathetic attempt, listen, to, to find a, a deep eternal satisfaction in your soul that God has placed there to be filled only by himself. And when you understand God's grace, you run from sin, not to sin. You increasingly hate sin. You don't increasingly love sin. But to understand that, you have to understand God's required justice because God is always faithful to His promises because He must be faithful to His righteous character. God must punish sin. Sin requires God's justice. Rather than everyone being off the hook because of God's grace and justice, everyone is actually on the hook. But this is the power of the gospel. Whereas Paul is defending his thesis, for in it, the gospel, the power of God is on display. The righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. That at the cross, the justice of God and the love of God actually collide. His justice is satisfied as his wrath is poured out upon Jesus. And love is displayed as he absorbs the full wrath of God. And as a result, he offers you and me full pardon for our sin. So rather than simply dismissing our sin, sweeping it under the rug, and violating his own faithfulness, he deals with our sin in full, and he upholds his own righteousness. This is how grace and mercy are actually possible for the believer. God's required justice is met with God's great love at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus. 